Welcome everyone to another episode of Growing Design. Today I'm joined by Walker Wright, and she is a director of UX, I think, at an at an agency out of Boston, and she has a ton of experience in um in UX and the design world and the agency world as well. Um, Walker, can you please introduce yourself for the audience? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today, Ed. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Walker Ray. Uh, yeah, I'm based in the Boston area. I started uh, way back in 05 and have been on the graphic design to UX design trajectory. So started on the agency side. And then when I sold my shares and moved on to just having a regular old jobby job, I fell in love with product design. That's so cool. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the story of your agency? How long were you running that agency for and like kind of like how it came to be? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, super small shop. We started like a lot of other people, you know, literally in the basement. Um, started with an idea about branded experiences. So the purpose was not necessarily within a certain vertical, but rather how do we make brands flexible and help them grow into different spaces, whether it's events, apps, websites, um, different kinds of presence and development areas. So we, you know, started with myself and my business partner at the time, who was also my life partner, which is what we'll get to later, I'm sure. Um, what is the foundation of the podcast for sure? And we built the agency up from really small, you know, local clients and eventually moved into our own space. And that's when we really started to thrive. So we were heavily involved in our local chamber of commerce. Um, we did a ton of work in the cigar world, as well as some work in liquor. Um, we even had a separate LLC dedicated to adult toys because having children's museum clients next to uh, the adult toy clients was not a good idea. <laughs> so we ended up growing the business to about eight people large. Um, I had the firm for about six years and ran it with my partner. And then, uh, we, we started at the clip of the recession in the U S. So we started in 07 and the beauty of that was we were cheap. So as the big agencies were running out of ways to save their clients money, stay, stay afloat. We were like, hello, we are $65 an hour. Please come and work with us. We will help your business. Uh, and we built our company based on, you know, starting with that small bit of growth and really riding the wave of the companies that were interested in trying to stay afloat, continue their marketing efforts, build their brands while the country was going through this epic moment of change. Um, but in 2013, a lot of our top clients started to plateau, it seemed. And we had a lot of people pull out and say that they were done investing in marketing for a little while. Um, I saw the writing on the wall. I grabbed my uh, designers that reported to me and said, all right, I'm going to start looking for a gig. You should start looking for a gig. I don't want to have to lay you off. And so we ended up closing the doors. My partner actually took the business with him. Um, but I moved up to Boston and then started working in-house again. Wow, there's a lot of uh, things to unpack in there. Um, <laughs> my, my first, uh, I guess, sort of question is, you mentioned that you were very active in the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, was that uh, on purpose or was just professional curiosity or were you trying to do some sort of networking? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So before I started the firm, I was working in-house at other agencies. And the most recent one before starting the firm was one where we did a ton of networking events and went to you know business happy hours, small business happy hours, large business happy hours. And I found that I was really good at the business development side of things. So I was networking for them at these Chamber of Commerce events across the state. And that was the tipping point, really, where I started to network for myself and say, uh, I think um, I'd like you as one of my clients. So I quietly started to build my own client base on the side while knowing full well that like the big business would end up rolling over to the agency I was working with at the time. Gotcha. And um, did you continue doing that when you had your own agency? Like that was always uh, sort of like your strategy for business development? Yeah, that was the primary. That was definitely, you know, we ended up teaching workshops. Like this was, again, so mid-2000s, right? So when the iPhone came out in 07, that's when we started. And then the mobile first boom started in 09. Um, I remember going to an event apart conference and coming back to the agency and being like, we are changing everything that we thought we knew. We need a new strategy. This is what we're doing. Uh, but we would teach workshops at our local chamber of commerce. We would hold events. Uh, we would also run the event management and the brand management for a lot of the chamber's events. And then lo and behold, you know, what was really interesting, at least back then, it was almost like a young entrepreneurs club. There were so many of us that were building our companies on the turn of this major event. And I know a lot of people are going through that right now with COVID too, where, you know, you may have lost your job, but you find this as an entrepreneurial opportunity. Um, and so we, we kind of banded together and helped each other out. We became each other's clients, you know, lawyers, mixed martial arts studios, um, as well as us on the agency side. That's so cool. So basically you discover early on that networking was a great way to, um, potential for, for potential clients to contact you. And also you were, uh, sort of like, ben sort of like benefiting from that exchange because you were also hiring their services for whatever your business needed. A hundred percent. Reciprocity was huge. Um, it continues to be huge, even though I'm working in house. However, you know, it was an incredible way to, build the business on what is what I, I was taught very early on. I went to a conference down in Florida. This was many years ago. And one of the people there ended up becoming sort of like a mentor to me. And one of the best pieces of advice I had ever been given was give your recipe away. Tell them the ingredients, tell them how long to cook it for, because at the end of the day, nobody's going to cook like you. In business terms, that meant I'll teach you how to do social media. I'll teach you what it takes to build a logo, to create a brand presence. And if you find that you trust me or if you can do it better, awesome. I want to learn from you. Let's talk about it. But what ended up happening, that became the engine behind our design firm because we would have these great conversations with potential clients and they'd say, you know, the classic refrain, you're too expensive. We're just going to try it ourselves. We'll see what we can do. And then a month later, we get a phone call and be like, so we tried and we failed. Uh, and we'd really like it if you could help us out. <laughs> Were you a little like scared at the beginning, um, trying that approach of like sharing everything, you know, like, you know, protecting your IP and feeling like, oh, if I just teach them how to fish, they're not going to come to me. It felt like... Uh, it felt like a moment where the universe and who I am as a human came together in that moment, because as a kid, 
I was always the kid running around the classroom helping other people learn. I don't know what it was. I have like my my parents are a nurse and a and a chemical technician. Like they're not teachers. So this was a really strange inherent trait about how I operated as a person. Um so I think when my mentor at the time had shared that with me, it dawned on me like, "Oh, this is what you've always been doing actually." And when I really sat down to think about it, what is really my IP at the end of the day? It's the trademarkable marks. It's the production value, the quality behind it. It's the method and the process. But we know that there's big business behind sharing your process and your frameworks with other people. Um, and I'm definitely more of a risk taker. <laughs> so I felt like, let's try it. Let's see what happens. And then how long it took you to sort of start seeing the results of that approach? Oh, I'd say six months. Uh, oh, it was pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it was a variety of different size clients with a variety of different size jobs. Right. So for really small things where people were just learning how to create images to put up on Facebook, for example, um, to people that decided to contract with some other web design firm and came back to us and were like, Oh, and by the way, can you give us a discount? We're like, no <laughs> price is still the same, but you're going to get better quality. because you trust me. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, like, it gives you leverage, right? Because they already know you can do it. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. And then um, what's um, sort of when they came and, uh, to work with you, did you ever feel like um, you could like dictate the terms because they already knew that you could do it? It depended on the person. <laughs> every personality and every client is different. Uh, some people you have to be much more forward with and just quite stern at the end of the day, setting your boundaries very clearly and being like, this is my job. You are not the art director. We have one of those. She sits over there. Um, and reminding them like, we're going to bring you along with the process. If that's what you want, if you want the black box and for us to show you something that you can react to, we can build it that way as well. Um, but it really depended on the person. I will say Like a lot of us that grow our own companies and firms, you get to that threshold where you can start saying no to the crappy clients. And sometimes the crappy clients are the ones that if you pride yourself on being able to bring people along, then focus on building your business with those people that want to come on that journey with you, as opposed to, you know, um, the old way of I'll create one logo for you and I will reveal it and it will be the only one that you will ever need. <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned something that's very interesting, which is um, focus on the good ones. Uh, you're always going to have crappy clients, but the ROI on on like being selective is is huge. It's like you're you're always going to have crappy clients, but as you progress in your career, you'll start finding that the good clients actually help you move faster and grow a lot more. And it's a lot more um, nice to work with them because they respect your process, they respect um, how you work. Uh, just makes for a more productive relationship. Um, I had another question about what was the format that you were using for sharing your expertise? Was it like YouTube videos, blogs, uh, blog posts, or Twitter, or what was the combination? It was much more high touch. Um, quite often, 
people would meet us at those networking events or they get, you know, referred to us from somebody that had worked with us previously. And it would often just happen in conversation. So we'd either have them into the office or it'd be a phone call. Um, and so, you know, if I think about it now, it was a bit white glove, but because of that, and similar to like, if you've had any lawyer friends, you know that uh, there are certain conversations you don't want to have in your email. And there are certain conversations you want to only have over the phone. <laughs> so um, it was an interesting way to sort of safeguard, to your point earlier, right, the IP. Um, but at, at, the, at that time, content marketing wasn't yet as prevalent as it is now. So it was much more ad hoc as needed. And then the benefit of that, though, was I could customize the storytelling behind it. Okay, so what I'm hearing you say is you're looking to do X, Y, and Z. We've helped other clients do that in this way. Here's something you could try if you feel like we're out of your budget, or we can really talk about a longer tail. So there were always, I was constantly experimenting with ways to package up the pricing too. Um, for anybody that's had to do that biz dev side of selling your work uh, inside of an agency, um, there's multiple ways for you to break it down and say, okay, so you want to do this um development campaign for your nonprofit right now, but it sounds like you also have these other programs that are coming down the line. Why don't we put together, uh, you know, a lump sum that's just divided across six months and that way it's smaller and it feels a little bit more accessible to you and your budget. That's great. Uh, were you charging for this sort of like, in, maybe not informal, but like when you were sharing your expertise, were you charging for those every time? No, not at all. Not, at, Not all. at all. That was just the cost of doing business at the end of the day. And, you know, seeing the return on investment of just having those half hour conversations, a lunch, um, even if they were in the office for an hour and a half, if I enjoyed them and there was that good connection between myself and the person representing the client, I had a good spidey sense that they'd come back around. <laughs> so it wow, felt like it was so... worth it. So I could spend you... them on advertising or I could do that, you know? Right. So like for you, it was just part if you just cost of acquisition. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. And then what's brilliant about that strategy is that you are showing that, you know, you're helping them so they feel, you know, well taken care of. And you're also gauging the relationship because you're like you were mentioning, like you, you start developing this spidey sense that tells you, oh, this is probably a good client to work with or, or maybe not. Things that you cannot do if you're just putting putting out ads, like you don't really get that right. opportunity, and you're building the trust. Like you're taking the time for them to to get to know you, and um, sort of like start developing that working relationship. So I think it's a win-win. Like, totally agree. Okay, I know that you're also into UX, um, and that was sort of like a transition that you did from like uh, advertising and branding. Uh, towards like product development. Can you tell me a little bit about how, how was that discovery and that decision to switch over? Yeah, that's a great question. I think when, when I was running the firm, uh, again, because we didn't have a very specific vertical, right? We were all about flexing experiences. Um, but what I didn't realize at the time was how much I just enjoyed the product design aspect. I'd sit on the phone. I remember we had this one client who made... Um, internet cable. So like LAN cables, again, this is like years ago, but still needing like those big fat juicy cables that'll carry sweet, sweet internet to you, um, from giant cabinets. And I would sit on the phone with her and be like, okay, 
All right, tell me again, what do the 12 dots on the face of this cable mean? All right, and we're gonna build this calculator, but I wanna make sure I really understand that when your salespeople are talking to the purchasers, what's the what's going through their mind that'll make them excited to start putting in numbers to calculate how much savings they can get out of this net new packaging of cable? So it was like those weird moments where I just enjoyed the friction, I think, between the human and the device so much more than thinking about SEO or uh, what feels like an immeasurable task of we're going to put out an ad and we hope something happens from it. You know, um, it feels like a, a black box a lot of the times. Um, and so when I hit that breaking point where it was time to sell my shares, move on, do something different, um, I made a choice to first landed a place that was sort of like in between. Um, it was, you know, like a, a healthcare company that had sold different kinds of like vitamins and specialty supplements and things like that. Um, but I was much more on the web design, product design side of things of like, how are people interacting, direct response technologies, things like that. Um, and then I ended up landing at a couple of other companies that I was like, oh, okay. So I, I think I'm good. I think I'm good on the like old school visual design only land. Uh, and I really just want to get closer to the customers. I like the science behind it. I like understanding pain points. Um, and I also just loved that you could let go of all of your design ego. It was important for you to do that in UX. Whereas, you know, if you're an amazing graphic designer for say Nike, um, I'd almost argue that your ego is quite important to be able to show up and figure out like, what's that next look and feel that explosive new look that's going to even change the fashion world as much as the sports world. Right. Um, but in UX it's, it's the polar opposite and that sort of humbling lens of it on top of the scientific approach and data driven side was what really got me excited. Yeah. I love that because it's like you said, um, I feel like, when you're designing those sort of products and fashions, especially fashion products, uh, it's a lot about art. It, it's very yes. artistic. You're not really solving a problem. You're, it's about expression. It's about people that will sort of resonate with that. But, you know, having just the presence of the logo and, and a powerful brand already is a guarantee that people will buy it, no matter right. how ridiculous it looks. So, <laughs> and, and UX is all about um, really being very humble and like assuming that you don't know anything and go and ask all the questions uh, to your, to your user, Fig figure out who your users and your target audience is, and then learn, um, learn as much as possible from them so that they can shape the product. Uh, so it's a completely different approach. Um, when you went from the, from your own agency, you mentioned that you started working in-house. Um, were you involved as well in the business development, uh, part of, uh, for the, for, for your employer? No, not at all. Uh, I'd sit in on meetings. I'd probably chat with the sales guys every once in a while, but for the most part, it was just running the teams. Okay. And were, were you okay with that? Or did you still miss a little bit the business development? I did, but I found that the entrepreneur inside me will never die. <laughs> and so I always have these you know, art meets business brain sort of projects happening on the side at all times. Um, I definitely, yeah, I definitely believe in activating all parts of yourself. 
um, that makes you feel whole. And so even if I don't do it intentionally in that moment in particular, you know, I was freelancing a ton when I moved back to in-house because that made me feel like I could still try out new ideas. I could partner with people. We could talk about, you know, this new mobile game idea and let's, let's go after it. Let's try it out. Um, without necessarily needing that to happen during the day. And those freelance clients that you were getting, were they, did they know you from before or you were applying the same approach of like networking and sharing what you know? Same approach as before. Yeah. Just networking in different places, not the chamber of commerce. Boston was really, <laughs> Boston was a much different place than where I grew up. Boston's very vertical focused, you know, they want you to specialize in that one thing because there's so much competition. Um, but it's very much a like keep to your damn self sort of culture. Like it's not the most welcoming place to strangers. <laughs> so it was very much like who I would meet on the side, tell them a little bit about my backstory. They'd say, Oh, I know somebody you should talk to them. Fantastic. Let's talk. <laughs> Did you have like a clear messaging that you, or like sort of like your, your one line pitch that you would give people about what you do? Hmm. It depended I on what was that person working on? So if it was app design, if it was, I'm trying to build a, a brand, if it was, I've had this existing company and I need to completely redesign it. Can you tell me why? Um, Those would, those are typically like the top three categories. Uh, and so probably different elevator pitches for each of those. <laughs> Trying to always tailor, you know, that personalization aspect um, certainly helped me get a lot farther than uh, having canned responses, I would say. Right. And since you, you were doing all of this, all of this was happening in person, you didn't have to like change the messaging on your LinkedIn profile or your website. Because right. Well, so my personal right. website would always change. Right. So depending on what was resonating, you know, I was still teaching workshops on the side as well. I was, I fell in love with the, um, the methodology and the frameworks within UX, lean UX, design thinking, agile, all of it. Um, and so I really started to branch out and teach workshops to different people that were running their own sort of UX meetups or different design gathering places. Um, and I would end up meeting people in those ways as well. Um, but because of that, I think it's always about just listening first and trying to figure out like, all right, what, what, what's valuable to this person and what can I tell them about my background that will also just be the most relevant for them. So as you were doing that and you were like, sort of like embracing the, the, the sign thinking and UX methodologies, you started sort of like to focus more in UX. Um, did that happen in the same day job or did you switch jobs uh, to focus more on UX or were you a hundred percent focused on UX? How was like, like, because you were coming from a different sort of like um, focus and then mm -hmm. you had to find a, you had to find a job. Did they hire you to be a UX designer or they hire you for something else and you started sort of like growing in your own role? Mm, okay. That's a good question. So let's see. So the first job in Boston, I was hired as an associate creative director, which is always hilarious. So like we, we promote from within. I'm like, but I'm a creative director now. And I just came from running my own place for six years. They're like, we promote from within. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Surprise, surprise. That place was crap. Uh, <laughs> I landed at a different software company and that was really where it was an eye-opening experience. I got to work directly with Jeff Gotthelf, who created Lean UX, um, that wrote the book. 
um, and trained an entire organization over the course of like two, two day, all day workshops, got to really connect with him, also see what he does. Um, and then obviously like attending conferences, meeting different people while being the product design director at that software company, all of those moments sort of opened me up to, Oh, I see what I can do here. <laughs> Definitely. You were always very, um, you were always networking, whether intentionally or, or maybe just because it came naturally for you, but you were always like, going to workshops, teaching people, sharing stuff, um, training employees. Right. And it goes back to that, that person I was as a kid and who I still am today. Right. I have this love of, I like to learn a thing and teach a thing. I'm going to read this book, this nonfiction self-help book, and then I'm going to try and implement it in my life and then talk about it, write a blog about it, see if somebody else can benefit from it. And that moment where somebody also has an aha moment and we have it together, that's what lights me up. Um, but also I'd say clearly I'm more on the extroverted side. Um, I spent, you know, my school years, you know, in music and acting. And I, you know, I performed in a handful of bands when I was in college and out of college up until I started the firm. Um, so workshops for me are very much like it allows me to, to flip the switch of my performer self um, and really be an entertainer <laughs> as much as I am. Like what you see is what you get. I tell jokes. I swear a lot. I try to warn people up front <laughs> and I want to listen to them too. I want to make sure like if you're in a small group and you're over in the corner and it looks like you're struggling, I'm going to come over to you and ask what's going on. How can I help? What are you stuck on? Um, I really enjoy the UX of people, but I like that uh, inside of UX and the workshops to your point, right? Like I'm not trying to network necessarily. I just know what I enjoy and what I happen to be good at will usually yield some kind of connection, whether it's one person or a few, it doesn't matter. It's all like growth and connection through humanity. Yeah. So for you, it, it seems like it comes naturally. Um, so I would say it's great that you had like, sort of like you knew how to do UX, but also you knew how to sell it because it was just natural for you to like engage in these activities, which for some people they would call it marketing for you is it was just being yourself. Right. Right. Show what and you know, <laughs> show what you know. And I wanted to also ask when you started sort of like being the product developer and, or, or like the UX consultant and you didn't have, um, sort of like a lot of participation in the sales process. Um, did you find any issues in which like the client would, would just want to jump straight into like, let's design something pretty and skip the whole understanding phase of the process? Yes. All the time. Uh, McKinsey, if you look this up on Google images, there's a, there's a, there's a two bar bar chart that's called, oh crap. It's the, not the gap analysis. Uh, if you search mind the gap and McKinsey, it shows, uh, companies who are really confident that they are meeting their customers needs and it's 80%. And then what the customers actually say <laughs> about how well they're meeting their needs. And it's 8%. So I would often pull out that little graph and be like, listen, so here's the reality. 
I'm going to teach you how to care about your customers, even though you think you already do <laughs> and what that means. And we're going to build something together that will actually be sticky because it will be useful, not just get used, but it will be useful and people will come back to use it again and again. Did you ever have to like teach your, your sales team about those things? Because I, I don't know, a lot of sales teams, they just want to sell and then whatever the client wants, they'll, they'll say, yeah, we can do that. Did you like ever have sort of like that conflict and like going back to the sales team and, t and, and like sort of like highlighting the importance of not skipping uh, research and empathizing with the user? Uh, not as much. Um, the type of sales teams I was often either working with when I was working in house, um, or even if the company I was working at, right, was trying to find the right agency for their work, I would often step in and be like, let me run that RFP process for you. <laughs> let's make sure we're getting exactly what we need. And let's make sure we're, um, we're getting dollar for dollar, like the most value we can get out of this agreement and, and this project. Um, but I will say I've definitely had moments, even in my job today, where our sales team is actually really hungry. They want to understand more and more about the customer base because it's sort of a B2B to C model. So they're selling directly to businesses, but the, the businesses have consumers of that software that are secondary. So if the sales team can say, well, your customers that will end up using this platform, they're actually going to have an easier time building out promotional material by doing X, Y, Z. Um, the sales team can lock in way more deals if they can already take that potential customer through the whole funnel to that end user. Whereas if they only focus on the, the business, it's very surface, right? They're missing the point almost. So I think... That's an ideal scenario in which the sales team uh, has a deep understanding of the process and they don't try to just like break it down just so to sell whatever to the, to the customer, but they actually try to like, um, sort of like educate them into right. what's going what things are going to look like setting up the expectations and the client knows what they're getting into. And I guess during the sales process, there's going to be a, a filtering phase in which clients who don't want to go through that probably are not a good fit and you're just not going to want to work with them. Right. Right. Exactly. And I'd say, you know, if, if anybody who's watching or listening is struggling to get their sales team to care, find the one salesperson who does care or is thinking about it. And what I mean when I say that is great salespeople recognize the pain that happens when they lose a deal. If they can find out why they lost that deal or they have a like a, a, a that spidey sense again, right, of being like, I just felt like nothing landed. Let me walk you through what happened. I have a video recording of the call. Can we sit down and watch it together? Can you help me figure out, like, what was I missing? And in those little moments with that one person, you'd be like, oh, I see. Okay. So you stayed on the surface. You only talked about really what was like the first tier needs, but there's actually three tiers of needs. And underneath each of those tiers is probably different problems that need to be solved. You want to show the value that you can bring by helping them solve those problems for them, right? Um, and through that one salesperson, if you can show the value of furthering their understanding and integrating more and more of that customer and that full funnel experience, 
then they end up becoming an advocate and an ambassador, right? Like you can use them as your amplification of what it's like to do great sales with UX in mind. Divide and conquer. Yeah, absolutely. So you convert one of them and then they do sort of the, the weightlifting for you, try to convince their, their peers. Because of course, they're going to be more effective at selling if they have a deeper understanding of what's happening after right. the sales process is over. Right. And if, if they do well, they're excited. They're going to talk. <laughs> they're going to share that win, right? Um, how did you win? How did you do it? That's where it comes out, right? Were you also like training them? Were you like giving them uh, workshops and, and things like that? No, um, I, I think looking back on my career, I've been very fortunate where most of the sales teams I've had to work with either get it or they're asking for it. They're really hungry. Um, I don't think I've had many moments where I've had to like sit somebody down. If they're net new, sometimes it's like, why don't you go talk to UX? <laughs> sit down with them. See what we actually do here. <laughs> did, did you um, at some point had the... Uh opportunity to like put together a UX team or a design team in which you had to like define the type of profiles that you wanted to bring in, why, and like how to like find them and, and, and recruit them. You mean just the design team itself? Yeah. Like putting together a design team, or if you have actually created other teams, that's, that's, that's not just design. Uh, I think it will be interesting to, to hear about that as well, but yeah, yeah. Well, sort of like, what's your experience, um, creating and building teams? Yes one of my favorite things to do. Uh, let's see. So the, the startup I'm working at now, when I joined, there were three designers and I scaled that team to 10 people in three months. Um, I apply very similar methodologies to recruiting as I do to building business actually. So the design community is really rich and fantastic. And we are built um, with really deep connections to one another. We get really excited about the work that each other is doing, right? You can leverage all of that to help build out your team. Um, but before you start recruiting, I think one of the most enjoyable parts for me is I take a UX approach to the organization. Where is the organization in their growth process? Are they on the heels of scaling? Are they at sort of like a pause moment where they just finished scaling and now we need to revamp it? Um, are they coming off of a really bad team experience? Like I ended up coming into um, the previous director ran an ivory tower approach where like no one was allowed in and UX happened in a vacuum. Research took three to six months and all along products changing <laughs> and pivoting along the way. Nobody's talking to one another. It was not collaborative. Um, so it was a really interesting challenge to come on board and say, okay, First, I have to figure out the DNA of what's behind the fears of the people inside of the company so that I can set the right vision and tone for the kind of team I want to build. And that will inform, okay, and how are we set up? Okay, so we're agile. We are grouped in these different ways. We have squads. Okay, great. So we're going to do a mixture of embedded. I feel like I need more UX and a handful of UI specialists. So I started building that team because we knew that we were going to go through a rebrand as well. So rather than start broad with, say, like a product design title structure, 
I ended up hiring UX designers specifically and UI designers specifically. We also had a fledgling design system that needed to be built out and I needed specialty there. Um, but I also knew that like over time we would end up changing and growing, right? As the team matures, as the rebrand happens, and as that design system matures, you know, it's similar to Scrum and Scrum Masters where you're doing it right if you're out of a job after a while. Like where if the high performing teams and everybody's really high performing, then the scrum masters aren't nearly as necessary. They're just tracking velocity and running stand up. <laughs> so the same thing goes for a design system where my goal is to try and get that to become a well-oiled self-managed machine where there's constant contributions coming from all around the organization, as opposed to just the designers that are working on it all of the time. Yeah, so where you were sort of like um, taking the role of uh, design ops, kind of like helping the team be more more efficient. Like you said, you were trying to make your orchestrating efforts uh, unnecessary just from the processes that you would like create and put in place so that the team could run smoothly without needing so much supervision. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And, you know, like I said, it's just, it's so important to be a UXer at heart as a director and a builder of a team. Like if you are starting from scratch, if you're just trying to figure out like how do you support the existing team members that you're coming in to manage, um, and then considering where the business is versus where it wants to go as a way to inform, okay, what kind of designers do we need to bring on board what kind of personality traits, quite honestly, and how do we create like a diverse team as well as like, what's the overarching goal for us? It was, we needed to flip the table. We needed to tell people like, you can come in. We are collaborators. Um, we want you to come with us. We want to be transparent. This is the polar opposite of what you've seen before. It won't be scary. We promise. <laughs> what, what's the one trait that you look for people when you're hiring? Hmm. The one trait that's hard. <laughs> like, I guess one thing that you would say, I like to see, like, even if this person doesn't have all the technical, um, sort of like skills, I know that this is going to be a great asset to our team. I'd say curiosity. Because whether you're an extrovert, an introvert, whether you're a researcher, a UXer, a UI designer, um, whatever brand, even if you're like an information architect, whatever brand of UX you're in, if you're not curious, then you'll likely end up being one of those people that jumps to solutions instead of asking, what's the problem that we're solving for? Okay. And what, what do people care about? What are, what are they having trouble with? That curiosity will drive you to finding the right direction to create a set of concepts that matter. You know, um, it'll drive you to ask great questions during a customer interview. Yeah. So like that innate curiosity and like that sort of like thirst for figuring stuff out. Right. Right. Exactly. Because the collaboration piece, um, how much you want to own a project versus how open you are to bringing everyone together. Those are all working styles that, you know, is different for every single person on the team. And I don't think it makes or breaks a hire necessarily. It's just a matter of, you know, can they be curious? I'd say also like, 
are they comfortable being themselves? It's hard when you're interviewing because you're interviewing and huh, it's nerve wracking. Um, but I, I, I have a stack of cards, which are not here because COVID. Um, but there's a company called the school of life. They make these incredible card decks. Um, and I have one that's all about, I think it's the 100 questions about your career. And so I went through the whole deck and I pulled out ones that are specific for interviewing because they're so random and off the cuff. It's almost like that, uh, <laughs> that terrible question that's like, if you were to be a tree, what tree would you be? There are better questions than that. But what I find is I like to be the last person on the interview loop. And then I throw in a couple of those questions and the more authentic answer and like human I can get out of that person, then I can really gauge like, okay, I think I know who you are. <laughs> I think I know whether you'd be a good fit on this team. Um, and either it sounds like you're curious about the work, you're curious about your own process, you're curious about yourself. We have so much to do um, as people to learn about each other, but we first have to learn about ourselves in order to be present. Do you remember off the top of your head uh, one answer that's sort of like really like took, you, uh, took you by surprise or that you really liked? Oh, yeah. Um, it was my boss, actually. Uh, this, this is a pro tip that I tell everybody. Like when you are interviewing, you are not the only interviewee. You should also interview the people that you're meeting with. So when I was interviewing at the, the startup I'm at now, um, I asked my boss, what was the question? It was like, what? What is the one thing from your past that people don't know about you, but you'd like them to know? And her answer was, I almost bought uh, a boys and girls overnight camp. I was like, oh, that's interesting because that told me, okay, you care about bringing people together. <laughs> you thought about it, not just from like, a business aspect, because I'll tell you, it's not very lucrative. Um, you care about being outdoors and there's something magical about getting kids to try new things and go on adventures together. So that was sort of like a, a linchpin moment for me where I was like, I'm very surprised at this answer because she's very like all business, very sort of like, uh, she's difficult to read quite honestly. Um, but that answer was what pushed me over the edge. And I was like, okay, I think I can work for you. This will be fine. Like sort of like that answer, like gave you like an, another dimension to like her personality that you didn't uh, know before. Right, right. Like, who are you as a person? But if I asked, if I asked her that question, I wasn't going to get a real answer. Yeah, you <laughs> can't be that direct. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your podcast. Um, I think it's such a, such an interesting concept and, and it also like evokes this memory of, I don't know if like people will like remember these things that these magazines are like, they were very popular in the nineties where you'd like scratch something and then it smells like strawberries. Yes. Or, yeah. Those, those things were a lot of fun when I was a kid. So why did you name your podcast, uh, scratch and sniff? And yeah, tell us a little bit about the story of the podcast. Yes, absolutely. Um, let's see. So yeah, the podcast is called Scratch and Sniff. Um, I grew up in the 80s and 90s as a kid and like sticker collecting was huge. Um, I still love stickers. Uh, for my 38th birthday, I got a sticker book from one of my best friends in the world and it was Lisa Frank and she knows me really well. Um, 
So scratch and sniff stickers are huge, but also the reason why that was important is because every single story that's told in the podcast starts with a very specific smell. Uh, the podcast actually started as a book. So while I was going through the toils and troubles and immense challenges of running the design firm with my life partner, um, we ended up going through a major breakup, ran the company. We actually had two companies at the time, ran both companies for another year before I sold my shares and moved to Boston. So there was just like an epic moment of, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I ignored a lot of red flags. And when I moved to Boston a couple of years later, I suffered a moment of PTSD that showed up in the form of a smell. So my now partner had picked up, you know, went to the grocery store, ran a bunch of errands, brought home some new soap, some shower gel, whatever, whatever. I go into the kitchen and wash my hands. And I am immediately like, just transferred back in time, looking at the silver back of my steel sink in this tiny apartment we were living in and completely replaying one of the most heart-wrenching moments of that breakup. And it kept happening to me. I kept having like soaps or somebody would walk by wearing a cologne and I would just be jolted into this moment of I don't know where I am, what's happening, uh, am I okay? I'd have panic attacks or I'd be fine. But then an hour later, I'd just be sitting down and trying to figure out like, who am I as a human? Is everything okay? Um, so I started writing those stories out because I was like, this is the strangest form of PTSD I've ever heard of and it's happening to me. Um, because I think when, when people think about PTSD, they think uh, it's through sound or through lights, right? Um, apparently my PTSD is very smelly. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so I started writing the stories down and I continued to realize how many other positive smells there are that are completely attributed to these incredible memories. Um, and so I used it almost like a, an organizing function for telling the story. And so the podcast is based on my journey and the uh, the rise and fall of the design firm, as well as my relationship at the time. And once we get through this whole like Walker Trent saga, I'll bring up more and more of those sort of like standalone moments. Like I have this great episode about CK1. <laughs> it's so 90s. I can't wait for people to hear it, but we're not there yet. <laughs> so yeah, so it's very much, you know, uh, Trent is the character that everybody loves to hate. He's that guy in the office that you're like, how? How is this guy still here? How has he not been fired yet? He's an ass. What's happening? Um, and Walker's trying to figure out how to leave her relationship without leaving her career behind. And I felt like I'm probably not the only person that's gone through this. I'm also probably not the only person who's been through some really crazy agency stories. <laughs> so as the podcast is now on season two, um, I've been getting incredible feedback from other creative directors, art directors, people that work in design, account managers, even the engineers who built the stuff inside of the agency, right? Like people are like, oh my God, I know this place. I know these people. I can, I really, I, I know that person. I know that situation. This is crazy. <laughs> and then you, you sometimes describe those smells. So I feel like 
maybe people can also like go and and like try to recreate that smell somehow. Um, right. I think what you what you mentioned is like first of all the idea for the podcast is so good. Is like it's really really creative. Thank you. Um, and like you were saying, not only for PTSD, but like people tend to like ignore the how these characteristics of smells of like codifying memories, uh, which I think I can attribute like only to like music. Right. Uh, sometimes you listen to an old song and then you'll be, you'll have flashbacks of what was happening in your life when you were first exposed to that song, which happens to me all the time. And I actually have a Spotify collection of lists per year of songs that were not from that year necessarily, but I was listening to, during during that year but uh -huh. going back to smell is like sometimes you know in a, in a certain city there's a there's a there's some tree or there's you know some store on on the street or there's something about the the air freshener that they use in the in the hole or things like that that you right. totally ignore in your day-to-day -day life but then years later You, someone will like use up a, a perfume that's similar to that to that scent, or you someone will use the same detergent to clean whatever, right. and you will like immediately be transported back to the first time you you had that um, you were exposed to that smell. A hundred percent. I think a lot of what's interesting is the pandemic that we're in right now globally, and that I think many of us are going to be hit with an olfactory moment of you know, whether it's a touch of PTSD or that just instant flashback of like, oh my God, I haven't smelled that cleaning detergent since I was wiping down every surface and every item from the grocery store every single time. Um, I even had, I had a moment um, a few weeks ago, I went to a, a small grocery store that we have in the States um, that we don't have a lot of them, but, but they're really special. And they have a grind your own coffee station. And I'm a tea drinker. We don't drink coffee in our house at all. When we have guests stay over, we have coffee, but nobody's been here for a year. Um, so as I'm walking through the tiny grocery store, somebody was grinding their own coffee. And I was like, oh my God, I haven't smelled coffee in over a year. <laughs> It's just nuts. And it, it was the most pleasant experience to be like, oh, that just feels normal. That's so nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I personally think... I do drink coffee, but not as much as I used to. But I do yeah. think the smell of coffee is almost an experience in itself. Like, yes. there, even if the coffee is not that good, but it but it has a good smell, you will still have a great experience drinking it because just like how powerful the the smell of coffee is. I um, totally agree. I think it's part of its appeal. Um, and the appeal of coffee shops, like, I don't know if like they do this, but they probably grind coffee, or, like coffee that they're not going to prepare just for the, to make the whole store smell like coffee. It's like main street USA and Disney world, right? They're pumping out pre-made cookie smell just to draw you in. We know what you want. We know what you want to feel like when you're here. <laughs> oh my God. That, that's horrible. Or like going back to, uh, this is totally unrelated to the rest of the conversation, but like sometimes you go to. Uh, to friends' houses, and I, I feel like every house has a particular smell. Yes, that you, for people living there, of course, that's like their baseline. They don't feel it, right? But when you go and visit them, you feel it because it doesn't smell like your house. 
And probably when they come to your house, they will smell your house and your house probably smells like, I don't know, whatever. But you don't, you don't really, um, even like, it doesn't even register because for you it's normal. That's like your baseline smell. Right, right. A hundred percent. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good point too. So each episode of the podcast at some point during the story, many of them just start with me describing um, what does that smell evoke? What does it smell like? It's, if you think of it, um, somebody said it's, it's almost like listening to a sommelier describe how wine tastes, right? It has notes of cherry and chocolate. And you're like, I'm just drinking wine. This is fine. Uh, it's very similar to that, but it goes a little bit deeper, right? Um, last week's episode was about the first light of a camel cigarette. Camels, I haven't smoked or been around a, a cigarette in forever, but um, you know, in the early 2000s, camels have like this really juicy grape smell to me, um, like raisiny. Um, and so I talk about what that smell of tobacco, like fresh tobacco really evokes and how it comes across. But then I also talk about how the first drag is actually the best part. I don't care about smoking the rest of the cigarette, but that first pull, that first light, the way that the cigarette burns and the way that the smoke smells is entirely different than the way that it smells for the rest of the cigarette. Um, and the enjoyment of the inhalation and the exhalation and how that feels. I study yoga. I am a non-smoking singer, but for this moment in this story, um, it's Walker and Trent going on their first anniversary road trip. And that's how they stay awake on the really long drive down to, um, down to the South. So that is, that is so cool. And, um, the way you describe the smells is very, um, like, like you mentioned, like a sommelier, like, is that de deliberate? Like, do you try to be very specific about what, about describing the smell? Yes, I do. Um, I, I enjoy, I think I, 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 what I want to convey is how visceral, whether good, bad, neutral, whatever, um, the smell can be for me. So it can be very complex and take me to a point in time, or it can be all about the game in my mind of, all right, how are you really going to describe what this thing smells like? Like nobody's ever really talked about how this thing smells. It's a lot of work. It's weird, creative work to try and challenge myself to be like, all right, what is it about opening up a pack of cigarettes that smells so damn good and why? And trying to figure out those like, oh, it smells like this, but it kind of smells like that. And, and I, I just, I don't know. I, I really enjoy the beauty of language and writing and how it can take something so mundane as yeah you smell coffee the end but there's so much power in that moment um and how do you how do you convey that to the listener and the reader yeah and and once like if you do it properly it's it's a magical moment because somehow your experience it's like it's like your audience is living vicariously through that experience that you just put in their heads and somehow they can imagine the whole situation which i think is like a superpower that uh, fiction writers have. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, people who like just create stories, uh, whether they're uh, fiction or real. Uh, but I think it's a superpower because you, you are creating things out of nothing and you are sort of like transferring whatever you're feeling to the, to the body of someone else. 
which is even crazier because it's happening in this day and age through technology. It's like flying right. pieces of information across um, the Wi-Fi in your house. Right, right, exactly. Someone, um, I've had a handful of people actually tell me that listening to the show is very sensory and it helps them escape whatever is going on in their life because all of a sudden you're just, it's, I don't know. So, some have said like it's almost similar to meditation where it's so sensory specific that you're just in this very focused state of thinking about all of the things that combine in a complex way to just formulate this thing that your brain does when it smells and it's using one of its senses. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. Um, all right. So what is your favorite thing about podcasting? Because you just started not so long ago, right? You're in season right. two. Did you start last year? I started recording last year. Um, and then we launched season one with the new year. So January 1st. Um, but yeah, started actually legitimately podcasting um, for the first time, really due to the pandemic. It was like, well, I've gone through editors and publishing deals that have fallen through on the book side of things. And I had written uh, and self-published another book um, under a different moniker and had learned, <laughs> I had learned the pain of the book industry <laughs> and was like, what can I do that feels really authentic to me um, that also doesn't have a paywall? So what I had been thinking about doing a podcast version of the book for a really long time And the pandemic sort of happened and I was like, well, what, what else do I have going on? <laughs> really? Like, what else can I do with myself? Um, and I have a, I have a, uh, creative accountability partner who we get together every other week. He's also, he's a fiction writer. Obviously I'm on the creative nonfiction memoir side of things. Um, and we read each other's work. He listens to the episodes. He gives me feedback. We help each other write better together and separately. Um, so that's been huge. And then podcasting, podcasting is very similar to being in a band. Um, this weekend I need to do a ton of writing. I have some net new episodes actually behind me is the story mapping that looks so cool. all of the seasons. Um, so I have to do some writing. We've got some net new episodes that I'm like, Oh, that story's missing. I need to write that. Um, but when I <laughs> podcasting is very similar to being in a band because when I go to record, I dread it. <laughs> It's like going to band practice where you're like, I don't want to go. I just rather go out to eat or do something else. But by the time you're there, you love it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I have a different experience. I actually love recording. Um, but I think it's because the content is different. Like for me, I'm talking to people and I'm like mm -hmm. learning uh, about their experiences. I'm having a conversation, which I love doing anyway. I love yeah. talking to people. Um, I have done a couple of episodes in which I script, uh, the, the whole episode and then record myself. And those ones I hate. It's, it's painful, right? Like it's also, it's very isolationist, which is not necessarily who I am all the time. As a creative person, I ebb and flow between needing to be by myself and just making or thinking or writing or whatever. Um, but I think it's like, it's the lonely side of, okay, I have to set everything up. I'm a one woman show at the end of the day. Like I am writing, producing outside of my accountability partner, helping me edit the stories. Um, I am the person running the Zoom H6. I am checking my own levels. 
I am producing, I am choosing all the sound effects and the music beds, I'm mixing, I'm mastering, and I'm distributing. So I'm doing everything. And so that's why it's so, I have those like dichotomy moments where I'm like, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's, I know it's hard, but I think my favorite part is, um, is finding the sounds. The, the, the amount of time I spend finding that perfect sound effect or that perfect music bed to hopefully take you, the listener to this place you weren't expecting or to make you laugh. Like this week's episode, Frozen Peas, has one sound effect in it, which is a group of people just saying, yay. It makes me laugh to the point that I almost cry because it's so silly and random in terms of its placement into the story that I just, it's like, those are the things. Those are the things that just like make my life <laughs> when it comes to making the podcast. That's so cool. All right. Um, Walker, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a fun conversation, learning about everything that you've done and you've done a lot. Um, uh, of course, I, I'm going to tell people, I'm going to put a link to Scratch and Sniff for people to listen to your podcast. It's a lot of fun. And you, we talked about it a, a little bit, but uh, go and listen to it. It's, it's really cool. Um, where can people go to find more about you? Yeah, I'd say uh, Scratch and Sniff underscore podcast is the Instagram handle. And then the podcast is available everywhere. So whatever podcast app you use, you can find it. Look for the bright orange sticker. It's a big round, juicy looking logo um, with some thick, juicy slab serif italicized font for all you designers out there. Um, and in terms of where to find me personally, uh, walkerray.com is my website and you can certainly contact me directly through there. Awesome. Thank you again for your time. It's been a true pleasure and enjoy your weekend. Today is Friday, folks. Yes. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me, Ed. This was fantastic. I really appreciate it.